All right, it's episode eight of Happier Work, Happier Life. We're here in Acumen office with Ken Shi, head of sales and marketing, to discuss the differences between traditional finance and fintech, tips for people interested in sales and marketing positions, and building your brand and trust. So if you're interested, definitely tune in for this exciting podcast. Ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ken, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Thomas. So first off, can you give a brief introduction into Acumon and yourself? Sure, no problem. So Acumon, we're a fintech firm here in Hong Kong. Our focus is mainly within wealth tech, offering um, robo-advisory. Basically, what we're trying to achieve is how can we make investing uh, more simple, more convenient, and more cost-effective for both individual investors and also for financial institutions. That's essentially what mm -hmm. we're trying to do here at Acumon. And I head up sales and marketing here at Acumon. Coming from a big bank now to a fintech firm, definitely a challenge. <laughs> That's a big change. Wow. Yeah, seriously, big change. <laughs> First off, for the non-finance people, what yeah. is robo-advisory? Um, okay. Essentially, for robo-advisory is thinking about the way it originated was actually a lot of financial advisors who help people invest. Mm -hmm. They actually had a lot of tools at their disposal, and the end user did not have any tools. So what started in 08 in the US was they said, well, why can't I give these tools to the end user? Now, obviously, it's kind of advanced. Um, the way we do it here is thinking about how can we use algorithms so that we can make it fully automated in terms of investment decision and recommendation for our clients. Um, so much like if you were to use Uber, right? When you use mm. Uber, you press a button, the car comes. Yep. So the idea is thinking about how can I simplify something that's very, very complicated that most people don't understand or don't know how to do and help you invest and build your wealth in a way that's really just a press of a few buttons. Okay. So is that what you were working on while you were in the traditional banking was investments or? Uh, no, completely no. <laughs> okay, what were you doing? So, so I was also in, um, the way you should look at robo-advisory is almost in like, digital wealth management, right? That's mm -hmm. how a lot of people would explain it. So I was in the wealth management industry uh, previously at UBS and mainly doing, uh, I would say, like product and content. So my job every day or, or I guess uh, in general was thinking about how, what does the market need? What do clients need? What kind of products do we have? How do we connect the clients, the bankers, um, and the products together? To offer a solution for them. And I would be mm -hmm. the one probably communicating it to both bankers at UBS, right? So there's like 400 plus in Hong Kong, um, mm -hmm. or to end clients at client events. Uh, so I probably, they'd see me like an MC, but actually my job most of the time was figuring out how to make the connection. And I think that's actually pretty translatable over here. It's just that the clients that we deal with are very different as everyday people. Uh, right now, people who use our app, and it's a completely different ballgame trying to connect with the, well, I would say, retail consumer versus yeah. high net worth, ultra high net worth people. Before we jump into comparing traditional finance and fintech, mm -hmm. do you have any advice or tips for applicants trying to get into finance, into banking? Hmm. Um, I think, to be very honest, I'm sure, particularly in this current environment, it's tough for anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't matter if it's you're getting to finance or not finance. But I feel like, to me, um, what I offered a lot of people was, let's just get back to basics. Obviously, there's a lot of things that you have to have that look good. Your resume has to look good. Hopefully, you've had enough good experience. And unfortunately, because there's so many resumes that they receive, yeah. chances are you really, really need to stand out somehow, right? So again, mm -hmm. maybe think about top of your resume, key real estate, having some key takeaways, transferable skills that are very clear. I think that's very important. But maybe getting back to basics is, well, 101, who do you know? 
because that mm. actually will be a huge difference maker for whether you get hired or interviewed versus someone who is a complete unknown. Because yeah. when times get tough, people want to take less risk, right? That's true. So that's why sometimes the transferable skills for some people is more important because they're much more willing. They only have headcount to hire someone that they know can do the job. And uh, that's quite important right now. I mean, for us, I don't think we're still taking low risk. Actually, mm-hmm. I'm still trying to hire people that I feel like has high potential, more so than whether they can just do the job. Um, but I feel like for a lot of big banks, definitely risk is lowered for sure. So you mentioned transferable skills. Does that mean that someone that doesn't have a finance background can get into banking or fintech? Mm, I think uh, two different things, right? So getting into banking, it depends where into banking. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain departments, like let's just say if you want to get into investment banking or let's say even within private wealth, pretty sure you need some sort of a finance economic background. Okay. Like I don't think you can, I mean, they do hire people, but again, the vast majority of people fit that background because ultimately you just want to, the thinking is they just want to hire people who smell and look like them, right? Within FinTech, it depends, right? Because FinTech is much more broader within, and I feel like within FinTech, they hire a lot more people, whether they could be marketing backgrounds, whether they could be sales backgrounds, whether maybe they could be creative backgrounds for all we know. Um, again, I think the demand is very different within the fintech industry versus the regular traditional banking industry. Mm. Do you have any advice on applicants who are considering between traditional finance and fintech? Sure. Um, I think it depends on the applicant. We've hired a quite a uh, number of people here at Acumon, and I feel like for a lot of younger individuals, they need a lot of structure, um, mm-hmm. particularly when they first start their first job. Because a lot of times you're looking for guidance and within a startup, um, I mean, I'm the first one to raise my hand that, you know, even as a leader, like sometimes a lot lot of times I don't know what I'm doing, right? Or I'm asked to deliver in a situation where I have never done before, Mm -hmm. right? So when you are the leader is doing that, then actually people people so-called that he's leading, chances are they may also feel like they're also in the dark or Mm -hmm. the guidance is not clear enough. Right. So I feel like for a lot of younger individuals, maybe depending on their personality, but going into a more traditional firm, you'll get a lot of structure. Things mm-hmm. are very clear. You may only need to do one thing. So yes, it's a bit boring, but your role, what you need to do, everything is very defined. Right. Mm-hmm. And so some people may really like that. Whereas on the flip side, when you come into a startup, it's like more about you being proactive. You need to be independent. You need to be comfortable with not knowing. Right. And that mm. fits another personality type. But for most young people, I kind of feel like the traditional firm might not be a bad thing for them to start. And then when they get enough confidence and enough skill for them to switch into a startup, that might not be a bad idea. Similar to what you did. Uh, yeah, but probably I, I came too late. I wouldn't want to say <laughs> <laughs> like a dinosaur right now. <laughs> no. Can you go more into detail your path from UBS to fintech? Sure. Uh, well, I, my path didn't only starting to end at UBS, but um, I had been working in like a traditional finance field. When I was in New York, I worked for a hedge fund as a risk analyst. Mm-hmm. So there I was mainly more as, uh, um, I would say I was more of a numbers guy, didn't need to see clients, was just calculating numbers all day long um, to where when I came back to Hong Kong after the global financial crisis, um, I was a uh, alternative investment sales. So I sold like hedge funds or private equity funds or mm-hmm. real estate to like Hong Kong, like rich Hong Kong clients, like, you know, high net worth, ultra high net worth clients yep. at HSBC. And then when I went to UBS, it was a different again, because now I'm more a generalist. I didn't really only look at like alter investments, but now I was thinking about how can I create content and connections 
with end clients. But I say to a lot of people that the move to fintech actually happened due to three reasons in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. The first reason was just that I think at some point you get very comfortable. Yeah. Um, and particularly, I think at UBS, um, overall, like I always gave great effort. And I think I was rewarded for that. I think what I would like to try is almost like a like a soccer match, right? So like a football match. It's just I can fight with people over the ball and might probably win, but I would actually like to try something like to go where the ball may be going. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was exciting to me. So fintech might be something that would interest me. The second thing was just thinking is that when your skills and your ability have come to mature to a certain point, actually there is a question in the back of your mind is that can this still work? outside of your comfort zone. So that was another big question in my mind that I wanted answered. Mm. And the third thing was just thinking was um, when I was with my friends and telling them that, hey, by the way, I think I'm interested to try something new. One thing I didn't want to have happen was actually for me to go like half a year or a year down the road and go, hey, by the way, I'm still talking about these hopes and dreams. I wanted to tell people that, you know, hey, by the way, I, I went out and tried it. You're doing uh, it. Yeah. I might have failed it flat on my face, but I'm okay with that. And actually for me, you know, not being married, not having kids, where I can be a bit more selfish, as you can tell with all three reasons, <laughs> um, the risk was very low. Mm-hmm. But obviously landing in a fintech now, actually what you realize is it's not about you no more, right? It's actually about others, right? So I think there was a bit of self-reflection in between where when you arrive, you realize that your purpose is actually to serve others. And I think that has actually made it a lot more meaningful as well. Out of those three reasons, what was the biggest reason you decided to join a fintech? I think if I could say, I think they were equally important, but if you had to make me, let's say, choose one of the three, in a way, I would say number three, right? Number mm-hmm. three was, I didn't want it to be just talk. Um, I wanted there to be some action. Okay. Um, obviously, there's a lot of risk that was involved, uh, took a lot less pay to go to a fintech, but I felt like it was important for me to showcase to myself and also to others that there was action taken. And regardless of the result, I live and die by that decision. If you meet someone who is in a similar situation where they want to explore, want to take risk and try a startup, but they're super comfortable in that secure traditional job, Mm. what would you tell them? I would say that you need to be very clear why you're moving. It shouldn't be on a whim. Um, I openly tell a lot of people that, you know, when you jump to a startup, a lot of times we're jumping on the idea or the fantasy of that it's amazing on the other side of the fence. Actually, it's not always amazing. Yeah. Right. So what you should be very clear is, can you actually, when you go to the other side of the fence, is this really right for you? Right. So you really need to do your homework. I think that's actually pretty important. Um, I had a junior private banker call me the other day um, and she wanted to switch to a startup. And my whole thing with her is, I think about the first day that I left. Uh, so the first week that I left uh, a private bank, uh, UBS, and I came here to, to Acumon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was serving multi-million dollar, billion dollar clients the week before. And then the first week I was here, we we're doing some brand new exercise and I was on the street handing out flyers. <laughs> so again, it's one of those things that like, particularly when you service retail clients or like a retail mass, you need, you need to be able to get down and dirty. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it's not for everyone. You know, when you're in, you're comfortable in a private bank, it's very she she, you know, like yeah. it's very elegant. Like 
do you really want to get down and dirty? And again, it's for less pay, mm. right? You don't have the cachet with a name. You're building a name. Is that what drives you? I think that's something that you need to be very clear with before you make the jump because it shouldn't be based on fantasy. It should be based on reality. Being realistic. But I mean, after you make the jump, yeah. of course, there's some obstacles or some failures, yeah. which I want to go into as well. But what were the rewards of taking that jump, taking that risk to go into fintech? Well, I think we've been very blessed in the sense that uh, I've now been here one year and five or six months. So the first two, three months struggled immensely. Mm -hmm. uh, I think many of my friends would tell me that they, they looked at me and they were like, why are you so stressed out? Yeah. I was stressed out because it was like you tried so hard and you got so little result. And that really, really got like rubbed me the wrong way. But yeah. again, good things take time. And I think that was the patience element was something that I also had to learn because, you know, in a private bank or wherever, when you're working in a corporate environment, usually results come pretty quick, mm -hmm. whether it's because of you or just because of the environment. Um, but when you come to a fintech, and if you are truly able to build up what you imagined and you start seeing progress, or maybe even no progress. But I feel like there is a lot of very rewarding things because you know that's on you, right? Um, and I think, you know, in this past year, what was quite uh, emotional for us was during like Hong Kong FinTech Week. Um, and I remember like when I first joined and we went to some trade fair uh, at like uh, Asia Financial Forum, mm -hmm. um, uh, January of 2019, like, like nobody knew who we were zero like people just walk right by our uh -huh. very yeah. little people knew who we were and then like we went to a fintech week that was like uh 10 months after uh and then just we were just bombarded for like 10 hours straight and people just coming up like hey by the way my friend uses your brand like oh like i, oh, I, I went nice. Alex, you know <laughs> like i mean again not everyone's converting being a client but to me that was quite strong validation that mm. what we're doing was the right direction it may not completely convert all into sales, but again, you need to come into the conversation. People need to be aware you exist before they can actually make that sales decision. I mean, that, that long funnel, right, of awareness, then maybe preference and whatnot, it takes some time. But to me, it was, it was quite emotional. It's nice so that you were able to wreak the rewards. It may have taken a bit of time, but you really had that feeling. No. Um, taking a step back, to more of the failure side. Sure. What were some of the obstacles, the failures in Acumen, but also in your life, biggest failures? Biggest failures, um, that's a big question. But I think, um, I think maybe if I think about biggest failures, I don't think it's like one thing, but I think what was different was when I was, almost when I reached 40, uh, when I made the switch was- Over 40? Uh, I'm, I'm already 40, yeah. Oh, so, okay. uh, so yeah, so I'm a dinosaur relative to everyone at this firm. Uh, well, you look young, so it's okay. <laughs> thank you. Uh, um, I think what was the difference was maybe in my late 30s into 40s when, I, when I, I really had a mindset change where I wasn't just working to work, right? I think there's a very big difference when you're just going to work and when you're giving it your everything. Mm -hmm. um, and whether, I mean, maybe it sounds a bit lame, but again, it's very hard to see these type of results unless you're giving everything, right? Whether yep. you're the most efficient or most impactful, let's get out of the conversation. So the flip side of that conversation was just thinking a little bit like I was always a decent worker, but maybe for at least, I would say at least like 10 plus years, all I did was just work, yeah. right? 
and I, I put that in, in inverted commas, right? So which is what everyone, most people are doing. But when you're able to escape from that, when you're not just working, now you're giving everything. I think that actually is a completely different experience. Mm. Clearly, this is not, quote unquote, I don't own this firm. I'm not a founder. But the idea is, can I come in every day like this is my baby? I mean, I could care less if I'm the founder or not. But thinking that, can you love it as that much like it's your baby? And obviously, you, you're very personal about it as well. Mm-hmm. And I found that when I did that was that good things came along. So when I didn't do that was, I think, one of my biggest failures. And that lasted for quite some time. Okay. And then now in Acumon, you're head of sales and marketing. Sure. So diving into sales and marketing, what is the trend in fintech and also the trend in people looking for jobs in sales and marketing? Sure. Um, obviously, it depends whether you're a B2B or B2C type company. Um, I think traditional sales jobs... Uh, they will always be necessary, but within fintech, I mean, the, the big, like, I think the big concern for everyone, particularly on the B2C side, is how scalable is it, right? On the B2B mm-hmm. side, like, even here, we have a B2B um, team, which was the backbone of uh, our business when we first started, and then we opened up a B2C line. I mean, to me, that's knocking on doors, talking to big banks, like, trying to get business. I mean, that is always needed. But when you play the B2C game, you can no longer do that because it's not scalable, right? Yep. So it really depends on what you're in. But at the end of the day, sales is a relationship game. Whether you're looking to find a job or whether you're looking to, to sell a product, everyone needs to first be self-aware of what makes them stand out, mm-hmm. right? Some people, maybe it's their high level of trustworthiness. Like they're just such an honest person. The minute I see this person, wow, they're so, they're so likable. Right, it could be something like that, yeah. or maybe it's like, wow, this guy's this, you know, this guy or lady is—they're such a hot shot. Like they just seem to know everything, mm-hmm. right? Or it could be maybe something as superficial as, you know, this person just really looks great. <laughs> that, that helps not <laughs> right, just that, sales. That, but again, it's more about are you aware of what your advantage is, mm-hmm. right? If you are aware and you're amplifying that, then that makes you a great salesman or a saleswoman. Mm-hmm. Right, but if you're unaware, then at the end of the day, you're going to find challenges for you to be able to connect with other people. Because ultimately, with any conversation uh, that you have with a client or otherwise, without sounding too cliche, a quote unquote sale is made. Right? Mm-hmm. Either it's me convincing you that you need this, or it's you convincing me that you don't need this. Right? Yep. So, so I think. The self-awareness is very important for most people getting into sales and really thinking about how can you nurture that. You mentioned being aware of what your advantage is. For some people who aren't aware, do you have any advice on how they can become aware of what their advantage is? Sure. I think maybe there's two things I would think of. One thing is, I think is maybe also look at people that you look up to. I think trying to emulate someone might be a good first step. Obviously, in the end, you may find out that their style doesn't match yours, but the part where you're emulating actually is a great test for whether this works or doesn't work, right? So again, we're almost like little mad scientists, right? We should mm-hmm. have a hypothesis. Like, for example, I feel that, let's just say, right? I feel that, oh, my thing is high level of trustworthiness. If that's the case, maybe you should try that out. See if it connects. Doesn't connect. Okay. It's like A-B testing. Doesn't work. Okay. 
Uh, well, you obviously can't make yourself look better technically, but but you know, I mean, but again, it's thinking about how can I systematically test this, and also part of it will come with experience, come with time, right? Because mm. chances are, in one stage of your life, you may be A, but as you venture into another stage of your life, you may be B, mm. right? So again, this self awareness doesn't start and end at day one. I mean, it's something that changes over time that you also need to be adjusting. And also, I would say, um, at that point, after you adjust, you're going to think about where's the next step. And I think that's quite important. You mentioned change over time yeah. for sales. Do you, what are the biggest differences you see that are required when you're applying for a sales position for a traditional finance company yeah. versus fintech? Okay. Um, so maybe that's not the most political, really correct answer to give. But truth be told, I feel like at a big bank, um, most of the time, you don't need to sell. Oh. Um, and I come to that conclusion because, particularly on the wealth management side, most clients that come through the door are already sold by your brand or half sold by your brand, let's say. So sure. all you're doing as a salesman or a saleswoman most of the time is just explaining your value proposition. Mm-hmm. You're not technically selling, right? So when you are a brand that nobody recognizes, then That's- now we ask you to sell. That is a very different value proposition just because... Um, most people that walk in the, you know, for whatever big bank name, they already trust your brand, mm. right? And you think about in the wealth management game, one of the most important factors is earning your client's trust because you're dealing with something that's very emotional, which is their money. Mm. And if you can already earn it from basically just your brand, then technically there is not much selling involved. People may actually just naturally buy or naturally open accounts because they already see trust in your brand or they see value in your brand. Whereas when you're like an unknown brand, yeah, very different game. How can companies with smaller branding increase their trust and brand? Okay. So that's that's a great question, by the way, since we had to go through that. <laughs> well, um, actually, we were actually even here at Acumai, I would say like a year ago, we didn't know that we had to increase people's trust in our brand. We kept thinking we had to increase awareness. But actually, the more we learned, the more we realized that actually it wasn't purely awareness, but trust. Um, So I would say the most easiest way to do it that you could do is associate yourselves with other trustworthy brands or people, right? Mm -hmm. It's like an entourage for a celebrity. The entourage automatically becomes more famous, right? That's true. Um, So what our strategy was, was um, I would say, a few things. One was thinking about how can we associate ourselves with brands or platforms that had high level of trustworthiness. Like, for example, if you were associated, let's say, like Bloomberg or CNBC or yep. some other brand or maybe like UBS or HSBC, these are brands that people trust already. And then when they see that they're already utilizing your, your services or they're being associated with you, this will automatically create an image that you are already uh, that you that they've already done their due diligence on you, so an average person should go, oh well, maybe I should trust them as well. So that's yeah. one thing that takes some time to build up. Another thing I feel like is more of an underlying current is I wanted our our content strategy uh, because we don't have many people here at Akimon initially. My marketing team, including me, is three people. Um, mm-hmm. Was we wanted to use a very documentation style content strategy, but more beyond that, it was. Everything we did, you always saw us all the time. But the thinking behind it was just thinking is that, think about that 
really good friend that you have, thick and thin, they stand by your side, right? I'm going to show up every day. You know, I mean, in the very cheesy love movies, there's a guy who's standing in the rain like every single day, right? <laughs> Again, lame guy, but there is an element that they will stick with you. And to me, that's something that is underlying current that you can build trust because particularly during tough times, like markets are doing pretty bad right now, uh, it is very easy for most people to kind of shy away and go into the little cave now when times get bad because they don't want to have to deal with customers yelling at them. But actually, it is the people who step up during this time period that earn people's trust forever mm. because they remember you when, when they were at their depths of like negative experience that you were there right there by their side. So I feel like that's something that I feel like there is a bit of courage, there's a bit of consistency that is also a way to earn trust. And maybe even if you're looking for work, Sometimes if you can give that air of I'm not going to give up, right? That I'm right there by your side. That's something that I think a lot of people immediately subconsciously feel trust with you, which may lead to the next step of you getting hired. As a salesperson, many people associate sales with lack of trust. Sure. So how how do you build trust as an individual? I think it really needs to come from like deep within. Um, I, I think for our business here, maybe it's not the best way to run a business, but I think from my perspective, it was just thinking, how can we just at least balance the business, right? So in most cases at a big bank or well, almost every business, uh, they always say the client comes first. Mm-hmm. But actually in reality, it's, it's very obviously quite the opposite, right? Uh, or maybe not so much the opposite, maybe it's not that, not that extreme. What we wanted to do here was thinking about how can the client really come first, right? Mm-hmm. I may actually be losing, be losing a bit of money uh, by doing this, but at least how can I create that great friend who's always going to look out for you, but encapsulate that like a business? I think that's something that not just your talk, because many people do talk, but the way you walk, you take action, that's something that is very clear at the end of the day, particularly when your your back is against the wall. What kind of decisions are you making? Are you still looking out for your clients or not? I think that's something that separates people who have are able to gain trust versus people who are not able to gain trust. Coming from the other side, how can companies build their trust, their brand towards applicants who are looking at maybe these smaller companies but aren't too familiar with the company culture, with the values? Sure. Um, I think maybe it comes back to almost like how you treat a client. Right. Um, actually, a lot of times, like as a company, you should be treating employees well, right? I mean, that's just the basics of what you should be doing, but obviously easier said than done. Yeah. I think particularly for a smaller company, uh, if you're trying to inspire trust and people wanted to hire, wanted to join your company, ultimately you need to treat your own employees well, right? If there's no there's no quick route to all of a sudden being the the hotshot company besides your company, maybe let's say raising a lot of money, getting in the news a lot fundamentally to attract people, you really need a lot of good word of mouth from within the company, Mm. right? Um, I mean, there are many companies out there, uh, startup or not, which amazing cachet to the name, but you see huge turnover and that should raise up some red flags. So I think for a lot of smaller companies, start from within, treat your employees well, and hopefully this will also spread out. Obviously, I feel like there's a lot of other things that you can do on social media and whatnot to also play up your image. Uh, that yeah. is possible as well. But again, that's only an image, right? So what you need fundamentally at the core 
is also to treat your employee well so that people will also want to work here as well. I believe, especially right now, it's about taking care of your employees um, because especially in times of crisis, Mm. people are going to remember how you treat your employees, how you treat everybody. I mean, being an employee in Acumon, can you share what your day-to-day life is as a sales and marketing guy and just give insight into applicants who are thinking about joining this career path? I would say it depends on whether you're sales or marketing because that's quite quite different. Different. Um, And also... On another level, is so, so this week um, I had um, quote unquote reviews with my own team. And even so, I think after the review, a lot of it has come back is that actually maybe earlier, like when business was going amazing, actually we had a lot of weaknesses within the team that weren't apparent. Mm-hmm. And then actually in the first uh, week of April, uh, I think maybe like financial markets sold off significantly. Our business slowed down a little bit for like a week and a half. And then automatically people start having more bandwidth and then they start noticing weaknesses within the team and they start going, hmm, actually there's not enough clarity in what we do, not enough guidance in what we do. So I, what I'm trying to bring out there is actually day to day, sometimes it's quite ad hoc based. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for me, my job is to bring in sales, right? Yep. The environment I hope to create for everyone is for everyone in my team, whether it's sales or marketing, for them to have the freedom to try new things and always feel safe in that environment, right? Because at the end of the day, if I'm able to deliver sales or we are able to deliver sales together as a team, then there's a lot of things you can do. Mm. When you're unable to bring in sales, then there's a lot of things you cannot do, right? So um, for my marketing team, like they may be based on every day I'm working on like like content for our platforms, our social media, updating our social media, we're creating campaigns that might be happening. For the sales team, it depends. Like for customer service, obviously they're handling day-to-day customer service tasks. Customers who want to open an account with Acumon or maybe let's say they run into issues. Um, And then for uh, for the rest of us who may be more outreach, uh, clearly that's changed. We can't just go out and like meet clients now anymore and that's technically not very scalable. But that's why maybe that's why recently we're doing more like podcasts, we're doing like webinars. And we're also, I think, figuring out after we do them, like, can we do it better? Is it having impact? And I think right now, everyone is still exploring. We're using, I would say, April into May, using this period to really explore and figure out, are the new things that we're doing, is it successful? Is Mm -hmm. it not? I remember you were mentioning earlier that you had hundreds of applicants for your openings, especially from the Cyberport job fair. How can individuals and applicants stand out and what advice tips do you have for them? So I think there's a few tips I think I can give. The first tip is uh, of those 200, oh, was that 500 plus resumes that we received? uh, It wasn't just the cyber port, but it was another also as well. Within two weeks, we received 500 resumes. Uh, Truth be told, so most of them are at my um, HR uh, lady, Emma, right? So she is the first line of defense and she goes through them. Um, truth be told, I would think maybe she's a little bit overwhelmed by that as well. It's so again, it may a lot of them, which may be great candidates, it's possible they may, may they may not make it to me. That's possible, mm-hmm. right? So I think as a candidate, I would say reaching out directly, ideally to hiring managers, would be a way to immediately stand out. Granted, there are some hiring managers who don't like that, um, yeah. just because they don't want to be bombarded by just uh, people inboxing them. But actually, when I think about it, if I was a candidate, I would do it. Because mm-hmm. actually, I think when you look at the numbers of people who are willing to do that, most people almost like undermarket themselves. Yeah. 
meaning is that they'll they'll think, oh man, I don't want to bother that hiring manager. I'm sure they get a lot of emails or whatnot. Actually, that hiring manager may not get a lot of emails. Really? <laughs> it's possible, right? So again, what do you got to lose, right? Yeah, you may come off a little bit annoying, but as long as you're always polite, mm-hmm. um, you're not too pushy, I think people are okay with that. Like at the last Happier event that we did, um, uh, I think some of the students that were there or fresh graduates that were there, and then I had offered like um, 10, 15 minutes of my time. I said, mm. I'd be happy to chat with them. Um, so I think I have a, another student I'm chatting with today. Again, uh, I'm not saying everyone should just reach out and go, hey, I want 15 minutes of your time. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people at this point, they're looking to make connections. They're looking to help people. Um, mm. So being a little more proactive will be helpful. Mentioned earlier, who do you know? If you have a friend of a friend recommend, that's going to be a huge difference just because you've already passed the friend test. Right? Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, even though we're a very technology forward company and now we're a very technology forward uh, society, but we're still human. We're still social animals, right? Sometimes it needs to get back down to basics. It's all about the relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the etiquette for reaching out to hiring directors, managers, because I, I can imagine they're quite busy. Um, you're pretty busy. Sure. So what, what are some do's and don'ts when reaching out to you on social media? So I find that the ones that um, I respond most to, generally I respond to most, but the ones I respond most to is either they were through an event mm-hmm. or through a friend, right? Okay. So I do get a lot of LinkedIn ads that I don't add because I have no idea who they are. Yeah. Uh, so the first things first I would mention is when you do add someone, write something to them in the message. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I met you through this event. Because um, even at the, the happier event that we did with you guys, I think mm. a wave of people added me, but actually a wave of them actually mentioned nothing. Oh, really? Like, so they, yeah. just, they just added and they didn't write anything. And then I had no idea where they came from, right? So I would imagine at least say hello, be nice, be polite, that helps. Um, and then follow up. Right. Uh, most of the time, maybe have very specific questions to ask. That would be great because mm-hmm. just asking for 10, 15 minutes of someone's time without actually outlining what you need to do, uh, I'm sure most hiring managers would be less inclined to do that. But maybe actually, if you already have a few questions in mind, they may already answer it via email. And if you need to follow up that with a call or whatever the case may be, I think they'd be more open to doing that. My last question for you sure. today is where can people find more about Acumon, more about you, and how can they connect with you and Acumon? Sure. Um, so I am a very like active, super, super active LinkedIn user. Didn't have a LinkedIn account like a year and a half ago. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was the uh, first, first month I was here at Acumon. We needed a LinkedIn strategy, and I realized I didn't even have a LinkedIn account. <laughs> um, so I've done okay, I guess, <laughs> since then. Um, and so I think maybe LinkedIn is the best place to find me just because it's most professional, um, I'm on it all the time. Um, to find Acumon, we have many channels, LinkedIn, Facebook. You can download our app on whether it's the, you know, like the iOS store or, or whether it's the Google Play store. Uh, and then we recently launched um, a new IG account, which um, my marketing team put together and we're really proud of it. And it's been pretty cool. I love mm. the way it's positioned. It's much more localized than anything that I could do. Uh, so you can reach us on all channels. But I think the main thing is just thinking about is... Um, I know there's a lot of people out there who may be struggling during this time. Like uh, I think when I talked to Thomas earlier, I you know I came out of college during a recession period as well. It took me eight months to find work. Been laid off twice uh, during those period. Everything added together, probably close to almost two years of not working. 
I know how tough it can be beyond just not having a job. It's also like a loss of identity, a loss of purpose. Um, and I think maybe this is the time that many of us need to band together and really help more people out. And, and hopefully, I mean, I, I'm not, I can't 100% guarantee that I can help everyone out, but if people reach out, I will try my best to help. Perfect. Thank yeah. you so much for your time and yeah. thank you for your passion helping the community. Yeah, thank you very much. It was really a fun podcast. Yeah.